2: Two thousand and fifteen, everybody. This is our first blog talk radio of two thousand fifteen. And uh it's very exciting to be back again, and we've got a wonderful guest tonight. I'm I'm very jazzed about this show. Um I was thinking uh that song that we start every one of our shows off with is, is uh actually a song called Matthew's Blues. And it's off my Still Life album, which was re- released in 1973. And I'm thinking I wrote that song in 1970. I actually probably wrote it in '69 um, because I was anticipating going to a uh, an evangelistic uh, outreach at Rhodes University in Grahamstown, South Africa. And uh, I wanted a song that would that would kind of capture the current mood of the day. And uh, and, the world is trying to get it together, trying to help their fellow man, hoping we can make it better. The rest of the song is pretty uh, pessimistic. Um, And it really pretty much captured 1969, 1970. Um, The amazing thing is that during that time, when I'm writing that song, thinking about, Heading out to South Africa, um, there was a war going on uh, called the Vietnam War. We now call it Vietnam Conflict. Probably because I'm not sure we want to have to face the fact that we lost a war. I'm not sure what that uh, what that's all about. Maybe uh, maybe our guest can shed some light on that. But uh, you know, it, it's uh, it was one of the big continues to be actually uh a, a, a big conflict in my life. The war in Vietnam is going on people my age and 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 some of them even younger were uh were fighting and uh halfway around the world many of them didn't even know why they were doing this. We all wondered what it was all about. And all that was going on, so many people getting killed, so many people coming home in body bags. It was an amazing time, and uh, uh, you know, I and, and I, I would have been, I would have been there, but for um, uh, either I, I can't even remember now whether it was I had a high draft number, or um, I tell you the main reason was I got a ministerial deferment from the military because I was pre-enrolled in seminary and I was enrolled in seminary um you know when I was uh uh still in still in high school so uh you know that that's the way that's the way <laughs> I got around it and then uh, maybe maybe it's because I feel so guilty because I never did go to seminary um but but I did get ministerial training at Peninsula Bible Church and end up in the ministry anyway. So uh you know, the the whole thing was 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 above board. But I, I've always felt a lot of compassion for for people who were there and wondered what on earth that must be like. And and uh our guest today is someone I, I actually met uh, again uh, a couple of years ago um at a reunion of our church. Now on our, on our promo, we say he's my, he's a classmate, a high school classmate. He's actually, um, well, that's pretty accurate because I think we are in the same class. Um, but, uh, we, we didn't go to the same high school. We went to the same church, but our church was so involved youth wise that it might, we might as well have been going to high school together. we, we uh, we had an incredible high school group. We did a lot of things together. got together probably two or three times a week. Um, and uh, uh, as a matter of fact, how many high school church youth groups do you know have reunions? And that's that's what we did. Uh, this group has a reunion. We're going to have one this year in April. I think it's going to be our 50th. But... Um, Uh, It was at one of those reunions, two or three years ago, that that I re-met up with Tim Witness, my friend, who was at at Lake Avenue Church when I was there, and I, lo and behold, find out, little by little, Tim uh, was in Vietnam. Not only that, he was uh, in the Army, he was on the ground, he was a platoon lieutenant, he was... uh, in the hot zone he was fighting he you know all the stories that we heard about Tim's lived them and uh, it, uh last week i think i probably just maybe maybe more for me than anything just to kind of work out this catharsis in my life i uh i i uh, reestablished uh contact with tim and and we had th- some great talks and I ended up writing a lot about it in, in The Catch all last week. And uh, uh, I thought, you know, tonight we got a chance to talk to a guest. Let's talk to Tim. So uh, uh, Tim has agreed to be our guest tonight. So we're going to talk a little bit about the war in Vietnam. We're going to talk about the military service, being a Christian, what is fa- how his faith handled through this, this, this whole scene, um this is going to be fun. Uh so everyone uh welcome Tim Tim are you there? I hope you ho- I hope you are. Welcome to Block Talk Radio.
1: Yeah, good evening, John. I'm here.
2: You are here. Very good. I I wasn't sure about Gunner are you here? I am here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got on I got on so late, Gunner, that I I I was calling for you and I just didn't even know you were there.
0: So Oh man, I've just like butter, man. Just like butter. I know, we're good. I
2: know.
0: We're 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 I've, you know, well, Oregon's
2: a little soft.
0: We're a little soft today after the uh big game last night, but
2: uh
0: Eddie, we're uh we're ready understood. to go. I'm, I'm
2: <laughs> i would have understood uh, uh, Gunnar if you were not there today. <laughs>
0: well, you know, I did wake up and it was amazing to find out uh here in the great state of Oregon today that the sky indeed did not fall. And but, uh <laughs> It was uh, quite the uh, quite the uh, national championship yeah. game last night, but I'm excited. This is going to be uh, you know reading the catch last week, uh, John, and just um, and I'm excited for this conversation with you and Tim, and and uh, reminds me much of you know just the the conversations I've had with with uh, my next door neighbor uh, Vince Palumbo, um, oh, just sharing yeah. stories uh, from Vietnam as well, and so um, I'm excited to bow out here and listen in on on a uh, wonderful conversation. Yeah.
2: Well yeah and and jump in if you if you like also you know I want to mention we don't we don't always uh uh encourage this but uh uh I want to encourage any of you who might be listening live and and might want to ask uh Tim a, a question uh our guest please feel free to call in um and what's yes. what's the number again Gunnar
0: um, Yeah the number is 6 uh area code 646 646- seven one six five seven two one. That's six four six seven one six five seven two one.
2: Great. And uh Gunnar will keep an eye out for your call. Um feel free to call in and, and join Absolutely. us. But uh you bet. but now let's 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 get to Tim. Tim um you know I I do in in talking with you, you know, we've discovered that that your entrance in, into the military was a little bit maybe a little bit different than uh some of some of my peers it seems like a lot of people were drafted and uh for that reason maybe not sure or not happy about why they got they got there what, what was different about you you tell us how you uh, how you got into in, into the uh into the army at that point in your life and, and give us sure, a little John.
1: background yeah certainly um I wasn't much of a, uh, um academic student. I was probably at best a, a C student, and although I, I figured someday I would probably go to college, it re- I really hadn't thought much about it. Uh, my parents were not college graduates. No, nobody in my family had ever gone to college. So I, I hadn't taken the SAT. I didn't know much about all that, although I realized that, that that was probably my future, but I didn't know how to get there. Nobody in my family had ever had ever done that. So I went to junior college like so many of us did after after college because we didn't know what else to do with our lives. And, and one of the people I went there with was one of our uh, church classmates by the name of Don Barrington. And Don and I really, really didn't have that much direction. Um, and we didn't know why we were really probably in, in college, but we, we, en- we enjoyed each other's companies. And we spent a lot of time talking about military things. I don't know what it was uh, about our backgrounds that – that caused that but we talked a lot about military we watched all those military movies uh the world war ii movies
0: mm. and then
1: one day after uh junior college we used to play handball every day after after junior college uh, and one day we were playing handball and we were talking about uh the war in vietnam and, and it didn't seem to be going very well and it occurred to us really bright 18 year olds that perhaps it wasn't going so well <laughs> because the two of us were not helping and um as we were having that conversation, we just happened to be passing in front of a, a recruiting station, and you might even know where it is. It's right across the street from uh, Pasadena City Hall on, on Marengo, and we were passing and said, well, let's just go in and check it out, and we did. We went in and checked it out, and and I think we were both probably a recruiter's dreams because Don ended up talking to a, a Marine sergeant, and I ended up talking to an Army sergeant, and 45 minutes we wa- later, we walked out, and... Done, said, well, what did you do? And I said, well, I'm going to be a paratrooper. And I said, how about you? And he said, well, I've just joined the Marines. <laughs> <clears throat> and <clears throat> so we had given a, obviously a lot of thought <clears throat> from the time we crossed the street from, from the uh, YMCA where we were playing handball. But <clears throat> it's something we wanted to do. We, we really were excited about it. Um, and I had, at the time I enlisted, I not only enlisted to be in the Army, but it volunteered for the infantry, volunteered to be a Paratrooper and volunteered to go to Vietnam, Uh, and now Don had just volunteered to be a Marine, but that was that was the same as volunteering to go to Vietnam at that time. So that was how we got into it. Um, Part of it was because um, we had this strong, for some reason, we had this strong anti-communist bent to us. We used to, we for some, we really hated it, and I I particularly hated it because it seemed to me that you could take a lot of stuff away from people, but when you take away their, their their ability to to worship, that was the worst thing because that did not only affected you on, on Earth, but that affected you potentially forever. So I was really upset with the communists for not allowing us to worship. At least that's how an 18-year-old viewed it. So that's basically how we got in. At 18 years old, there's nothing our parents could do about it. And um, a few weeks later, we were off. He was off to the Marines, and I was off to the Army. Wow, what
2: did your parents think about this? by the way, that is interesting. My thought. mother
1: said something like, "You dumb kid, don't you know there's a war going on hmm. and and i didn't I didn't say anything, but my reaction was, "Well, of course, I know there's a war going on. Why in the world would you enlist if there wasn't a war going on? What would be the point? I mean for me, the only point of going in this service was to fight in the war so i i that's just the way I was at eighteen, <clears throat> but wow. um they were not they were not at all happy with me.
2: So you really wanted you really wanted to be boots on the ground in the middle of the action. That's what you
1: wanted. That's exactly right. And and I I I was and yeah, that, that's exactly what I wanted to do. And um and that looked like a where I was destined. Yeah.
2: Hey, Gunnar, he's he's our boots on the ground guy. <laughs> we 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 talk about boots on the ground a lot in terms of our faith in the in the marketplace. So. Uh, this is this is great. It it gives it a little bit more of a uh, a meaning here. Um yeah. now I I heard a little bit about your story, Tim, so I'd love for you to tell a, a little bit how you ended up um actually an officer uh training school and you've gotta tell the, uh, the the spelling the spelling joke that is really classic.
1: Well, one of the things that about the Army that I, I probably didn't realize but came to appreciate more was that uh, you do have a lot more choices um, in the Army than you would, let's say, the Marines. So when I got in uh, the Army and I was in basic training, <clears throat> they would come through every once in a while and, and ask uh, any any of the recruits if you wanted to volunteer for a certain class. They would say like jungle warfare school or flight school or uh, jump school, which I was already signed up for, or any number of other schools. Then, about the sixth week, they came through and they and they pulled eight of us out of 200 out of the out of the formation and took us into a room and said, "You eight have been pre-selected for officers' candidate school. Who wants to go?" And of course, I immediately raised my hand. And said, "I'll go," not really appreciating what that meant. <clears throat> uh, and then I went through a series of of tests and exams. Um, And I got qualified and and, and accepted. So I ended up going to Infantry Officers Candidate School at Fort Benning, uh, Georgia. And the story you are alluding to, John, was my first week that I was there, um, I was stopped by one of the training officers who said, so you want to be a lieutenant? And I said, "Uh, yes, sir. And he said, well, that's just great. Why don't you spell lieutenant for me? Now, remember, I told you I wasn't a very good student, and my worst subject was probably spelling. So I I rolled my eyes, and I, I tried to do it phonetically, and I said, L-E-W, and then he shook his head no. And I tried again. I said, L-O-U, and he shook his head no. And, he, and then he said, well, uh, uh, candidate Lickness, I don't think you're going to be a lieutenant, but maybe you're going to be a colonel. Why don't you spell colonel for me? I paused and rolled my eyes, and I said something like, K-E-R, and he shook his head. And then I said, C-U-R, and he shook his head. He said, well, I guess you're not going to be a colonel. And then he said something like, well, maybe you're going to be a private. Well, about this time, I just wanted to spell something correctly, so I said P-R-I-V-A-T-E, and he says, that's right, and that's what you're going to be. And then thinking of my own health, he um, kindly told me that I was making him ill and that I should get out of his presence. And so I, I laughed and uh, that was about a week into it. Uh, But six months later, I ended up graduating um, about the middle of my class where I was probably in high school, about the middle of my class. Uh, And by then I had learned to spell Lieutenant. But the odd thing that happened then, John, was I got my orders and um, as the army would do things, I got orders for Korea, not for Vietnam. So not knowing better, of course, I just packed up all my stuff and ended up going to Korea, where I spent almost a year. And it was during that year um, that I, I was in contact with Don, who was by then in Vietnam, and I realized what he was going through. And and I realized, what well, we had enlisted together to go to Vietnam, and so I once again volunteered to go to Vietnam. And it turns out even in the Army, you don't have to volunteer twice for combat. Um, they sent me. So I went from 30 below uh 0 in Korea to 100 above in uh, Vietnam wow. in plane flight. Ooh. Wow. Wow. Now and I should just say that when I uh, the, the, the timing here now was uh February 1968. Um okay. is when I arrived in Vietnam and for those who know a little bit about the history of uh, Vietnam this was right at the end of the Tet Offensive the the major the big news Tet Offensive where we lost so many many men, and the war basically got turned around. If you recall, uh, Walter Cronkite at that point realized the war was unwinnable, and he turned against the war. So that's when I arrived. I arrived in February 1968, but what was going on on the ground was um, the American and our allies were gearing up for a counteroffensive, and so within weeks, literally within weeks of arriving, I was – leading a platoon, um, and in combat. How, how many men in a platoon? Generally speaking, a platoon is made up of 30 to 40 men of, at full strength. We were lucky to operate, um, with, with 30. So we operated generally with somewhere between 22 and 30 men in a platoon. Uh, we just were never at full strength.
2: Okay. All right. And, um, you know, so you show up, you're you're gung ho uh, about this.
1: Uh, I am. Was, was there?
2: What about, you know, what about all those guys who don't know what they're doing there, and and they were they were drafted. They they don't really want to be. Was there a, what was that like? What, was there a, a lar- Was the what was the morale like? That's what I need to ask. You know. What, yeah.
1: Yeah, that's was a, that? that's a great question. The, the thing is, when I got to Vietnam, I I, I came over uh, unassigned, so I wasn't assigned to any unit. I went through the replacement uh, protocols, and um, at the time, um, the 101st Airborne Division was in was in need of replacement officers, and since I had uh, gone to jump school and was qualified, I got assigned to the 101st Airborne. So as it turns out, in at that time, and this this changed while I was there, but at that time, you couldn't be in the 101st unless you were uh, a paratrooper, unless you were jump qualified, had gone to jump school, which mm-hmm. means you had to volunteer for something. You had to at least volunteer to be <clears throat> um, a paratrooper, and you probably volunteered to go in the service because not everybody gets to become a paratrooper. So, And our unit, when I first got there, was made up mostly of volunteers. So we were a little bit different than some of the units. We were a little bit more gung-ho. Now, that mm-hmm. did change because after about three months, we were not getting enough uh, re- uh, replacements. And so we started getting draftees in our unit.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So uh, I experienced both being with an all-volunteer unit and then later on with a unit that contained draftees. The one thing that, that was uh, uh, um probably the most difficult about my experience is that I was a replacement officer. And so I replaced the platoon leader who had been killed about a week before I, I arrived in country. So they didn't know me, and um, I didn't know them. And they didn't know my, how qualified I was or we hadn't trained together or any of that. So it was a little bit different coming in and being a replacement officer because people do, we just didn't know each other well. We hadn't trained together. We hadn't built a... Uh, a spirit of corps that you would expect in a, in a unit that had trained together. So that that was probably wow. the most difficult thing. I actually felt a little bit not part of them for a long time. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so I kind of ate by myself and hung out. You know, I was sort of alone because th- we didn't mix uh, like the other platoon leaders from the other platoons, and I would not mix because we had to stay with our units. So I was I pretty much felt alone for a while. Did you feel?
2: I mean, did you feel adequately trained for your job? Or were you, you know, what was the what was the fear level uh, for you in
1: terms of job, and then in, just in terms
2: of, of, you know, obviously the threat
1: of yeah. death and, and Yeah, that's a that's a that. that's a really that's a really good question. <laughs> I, I felt that the first thing I realized I felt very fortunate I had spent a year in Korea. Uh, my year in Korea was as a line officer. Uh, patrolling the DMZ and even though didn't make all the news there was hostilities in, in in Korea we did actually lose three men in a firefight so there was so I had some experience with uh, sort of semi-combat situations and leading men so I had a year of experience under my belt so that that really helped a lot um, I, okay. I don't know what would happen if I if I hadn't had that. But in terms of training, I will tell you one interesting thing is that um, M16s were were, which is our, our weapon of choice for the infantry, um, was, was hard to come by in the states. And I had never held an M16 in my life before I got to Vietnam. I'd never trained on it. I'd never shot one. I'd never cleaned one. I'd only seen them. So, um I had to spend a week getting familiar with my own weapon. I, I didn't know how to take it apart or anything. So that was a little unnerving, uh although it turned out that I, I ended up liking that as a as a weapon. Um but I, I felt fairly adequately trained. Um I did I did feel a little self conscious with some of the other platoon leaders who were like for instance, West Point graduates mm-hmm. Even our LTC graduates or, or VMI, um, some of those that had a lot more training. My training was basically a year in Office uh, Candidate School and then a year in Korea. But I didn't feel inadequate, um, partly because I felt like I knew more than than at least the men I was leading. I, I knew I knew how to read a map better. I knew how to read a compass. I knew how to use the radio better. So I, I had some of those. Mm. Sort of necessary skills that they didn't have, so I, I, that that part didn't bother me too much. Tim, I have to
2: tell you, um, I had an M16, and I learned how to take it apart and clean it at Wheaton College.
1: <laughs> I think have you, you had an anything? AR. You had an AR15.
2: Is that right? Which is, is that which, what I would have I thought it was an M That's a civilian
1: version <laughs> of an M16. M16 is well okay. it file, fires on uh, fully automatic and AR15 only fires fire semi-automatic.
2: Okay. So you I you were one up on me being <laughs> I was wondering about that? I was wondering how, how you survived with one of those things. Um no, I was in RTC at at Wheaton in 1980. Oh. It was required. I I had to be in ROTC. Uh, um, they actually stopped ROTC as a requirement.
1: I think my my junior year. Oh, so you do have an M16, uh, but a fully automatic weapon.
2: Is that right? Well.
1: Yeah, I, I, I assume so. If you were if you were in ROTC, you probably had a full automatic weapon. I I don't yeah. know why we didn't get to train on them when I was an OCS, but I never got a chance to train on it.
2: We didn't ever fire the thing. We just carried it and you know on our shoulders. and <laughs> learn how to present it and I think we did actually take it apart and clean it and put it back together again. I remember doing that.
1: But uh well, th- yeah, it was interesting. Interesting. I that think you another... I think I wanna see Go a ahead. picture of you in uniform. <laughs>
2: well, that's an interesting I'll see if I can find one. Boy whether I can dig one one of those, I don't know. But oh yeah, we two I think it was two or three three mornings a week. Um we met, we had our battalion and our platoons and and we marched around the streets of uh, Wheaton. Yeah. Wow. I don't know, but I've been told, Wheaton girls are mighty cold. <laughs> Downfall, one, two. Yeah, yeah. we did the whole
1: thing. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I remember all that. Well, John, John let me tell you another, another thing about my first week. Um, yeah, I'm I joined in my unit. Theory. Sorry. Uh, uh, my first week. Can you hear me now? I'm.
2: Yeah, I can. Go.
1: Uh, my first, when I first joined my unit, I first got to my battalion, before I was even assigned a platoon, uh, I was called in by my battalion commander, and a battalion commander is a lieutenant colonel, which is fairly high rank. And And he called me in, and, and he was a very famous guy. You wouldn't know him, but most people in the military knew this guy. He was he was quite well known. And he said to me, he said, well, welcome to the unit. He said, Tell me, are you a college graduate? And I said, no, sir, I am not. He said, "Well, Lieutenant, are you um, at least a uh, reform school graduate?" I said, "No, sir, no, sir. I've never been to reform school." And he says, "Well, hopefully you've been to jump school." And I said, "Yes, sir. I've been to jump school." And he says, "Well, welcome. Come on in. Let's have lunch." And we just take sea rations out of a can for lunch. But that's that was my welcome in by this guy asking me if I'd been to college. No, reform school. No, but at least I've been to jump school.
2: <laughs> so, so here you are. Um, h- how soon are you? you uh you know how quickly are you into action there um I know that first story the first story that we heard about where uh you do the helicopter rescue that that was pretty early on, wasn't it
1: right that happened on uh, that started on april third and um so that was about five weeks after I arrived in country about three weeks after I joined my uh, uh mm-hmm. a battalion. And uh, it's just, it just two weeks after I turned 21. So it was early on. I hadn't been there very long. Um, did you want me to tell the story?
2: Yeah, tell the story of that one. Yes, please.
1: Well, uh, we were out on patrol, uh, company-sized uh, patrol. And during the night of April 3rd or the morning of April 4th, we, we got in a, in a firefight. And two of uh, the members of our company, not my platoon, were wounded and we were going to need a medevac. So about four 4.30 in the morning, uh company commander called the three platoon leaders together, and he assigned me the task of going out and securing a mountain, a uh, little hilltop, about uh, three or 400 yards away, 300 meters away, which in the jungle is a long ways. Um, and so he said at first light, um, called me 3-6, was my call. sign, 3-6, take your platoon and, and head, out, head out for this hilltop. Which I did, and at the same about that same time, the medevac uh, left wherever from wherever it was uh, stationed toward uh, the company's location. Um, It took a couple hours, but uh, a couple hours later, he was flying near my position, looking for my company's position, when the medevac was hit by a rocket, and uh, and it we we could tell both by the sound of the the. the rocket hitting it and also by the radio chatter that he was going down. So as he went down, I realized I was probably the closest American unit, a friendly unit uh to the where the crash site was going to be and as it as he uh was flying away from me, I used my compass and and made a reading, we call it shooting an azimuth or getting a getting a bearing of the direction. Mm-hmm. And as soon as the last I heard no more sound, I called my company commander and said you know, I I think I can go find these guys, and he said yes. But don't take your platoon; only take a, a, a small rescue party because we want to hold that mountaintop that you're on. So you just take whatever you need. And I took five guys and a med- and a medic and my radio operator, and we we headed out using the compass yep. reading and followed so that them, for about four them. hours. Yes.
2: So you are leave- You're leaving now. The, the other guys, you're leaving on the on the hill without leadership. Is that, no, my is platoon that right sergeant or? would
1: be. My platoon okay. sergeant would be in charge.
2: Okay,
1: all right. So he's a, he's, in, uh, he's Yeah, he's an. He, he's the senior sergeant. So each squad okay. is led by a sergeant, and then the platoon has a, a number two in command as a platoon sergeant. So I left him in, in charge of the uh, the rest of the platoon. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then we headed out. It took us about four hours of some pretty tough jungle. Pretty, I mean, it was we couldn't see the sky. Uh, very, um, very thick. We had to cut our way through it, but we eventually found the helicopter. Um, and I, I looked in, and it was burned, mostly just ashes by that point. I looked in to look for bodies and didn't see any uh, remains. And, and I was yelling at my men because there was no reason to be quiet because there's there's no secret we were there. The helicopters just shot down. So I was yelling at my men, look for trails, look for, because I thought they might have been captured, and we'd, we'd then take off after them. Uh, But as I was yelling, um, the crew made their presence known. They were hiding under some bushes, and they made their presence known. And and so we found three of the four crew members still alive, all of them badly hurt, two of them burned. And um, we spent the rest of the day getting back to the company's position. And then it took us four more days to get them out because by then we had attracted a lot of attention. And uh, we found ourselves pretty much surrounded and outnumbered and unable to move um, Mm -hmm. because – uh, we had so many wounded. We had the original wounded. Now we had the helicopter wounded. The company had taken some additional wounded that day in another firefight. So by that night, we had, including my company commander, wounded. So by that night, we had a number of wounded. So we were pretty much stuck where we were, and wow. um, and we had no landing zone. So it took us four days to get them out. But eventually, we did get everybody out safely. Um, and that was probably the highlight of my, of my Vietnam experience. I was feeling pretty good after that. Wow.
2: So that was a successful basically you would call that a success.
1: Yes, and in, in fact when I got when we got back to our base camp, um you know people were coming up to me, my my battalion commander, the battalion executive officer, other people, you know, you know pat me on the back, say good job, Lickness, and that kind of stuff. Now my company commander was had been badly wounded and he was gone and I never I would never see him again. Um but <clears throat> I was feeling pretty good about myself. So now we're mm-hmm. in now we're in the uh, middle of the second week in April um, and uh, going into May and, and June of 1968 and for, the, for those of you who don't remember this, May 1968 was the highest casualty month of any month in the Vietnam War for Americans. Wow. We, we, were lo- we lost 20 over 2,400 men in one month. So we were losing 600 men a week. So as we approached April, May and June, that was Probably the hottest, most difficult time um, for those of us who are serving in 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 Vietnam, especially on the ground. Wow,
2: wow. Well, um, just uh, we've got one more story we want you to tell, and that that's probably the the worst day of your life. It sounds like. Um,
1: right. When did that so, happen?
2: How much later was that? And uh, tell us that story.
1: So so I go through the rest of April and into May and, and and this is a lot of combat but I am feeling good about myself. And and uh-huh. I and I I really kind of felt a little bit and, and I I even used this in a letter home. I said I feel like I've got a bubble around me. Like I'm not going to be mm. hurt. I I really wow. had that sense that I was I was okay. Um I, I even I I remember thinking about Looking at guys that were wounded and actually thinking of them in a different, with a different word. Like I said, that's them. They're not us anymore. It's them. I'm glad I'm not one of them. Because I just felt like, I I mean, I I know that sounds odd, but that's how I felt. And there was a lot of combat, and we we were in a lot of combat in April, May, and early June. Then on June 15th, uh, excuse me, June 16th, Uh, 1968, and I remember the date because it's my sister's birthday, and it was a Sunday. And I remember waking up. We were at the base camp, and it was a beautiful day, Um, absolutely gorgeous day. It had been raining for several days. The rain had stopped. The jungle smelled smelled fresh. Um, It was sunny. um, And I thought, gee, what a beautiful day. And my battalion, excuse me, my company commander came to me and he says, Tim, I've got a – or 3-6, my call sign – I've got a mission for you, and it's just going to be your platoon. So you're going, to go out, you're going to go out alone. We're going to helicopter you out to this site, and we want you to look for a rocket launcher. We, we uh, Some of the bases are being harassed by a rocket launcher, and these aren't very precision rockets. These are what we might call today a scud rocket, just sort of fired in the general direction of whoever you want to hit, but without really being very specific mm-hmm. of a target. So go out there and try to find this rocket. And so we got on the helicopter. We flew out there, and, and I kind of made plans and the route we would take. And we were lo- walking along a finger of a of a um, a ridge. And um, we've been doing this for about an hour or so. And my my point man then signaled us to be to come to a stop, and then signaled, uh, we used hand signals everybody to be quiet, and then signaled me to come forward. I would be about the sixth or seventh. Man, back in formation, where I usually would would be would be in a in a column formation. And he signaled me up, and then he he pointed up into the jungle ahead of me, and and he kind of smiled and raised two fingers and indicated he can see two North Vietnamese. And so my plan was to capture them, because um, it was always better to capture than to than to than to kill. Uh, because you could get intelligent information by sending them in the back where they could be questioned. So I started to maneuver my men around to try to capture these two North Vietnamese who were just sitting there. They were just sitting there. They had their uh, their packs next to them. Their, their rifles were laying down. They were sitting on either a log or a stump or something, and um, they heard us uh we were not being, I guess, quiet enough, and they, they reached for their rifles, and and it was, a you know, one of those one-second firefights because there's 30 of us with rifles ready to go and two of them. But anyway, um, so we got up there, and I was looking through their packs, looking for any information that might help, and one of my men came up with sort of a Cheshire cat smile on his face, and he says, you got to come here and check this out, LT. LT is abbreviation for lieutenant. Um, And so I walked over, and there, hidden in the bushes, was a rocket launcher. And we were just, I mean, it was just, we were elated. We found what we were looking for. We found this rocket launcher. And I said, well, have you found any ammunition? And the answer was, no, we have not found any ammunition. The point where we were, this finger then dropped off on three sides. So my plan was, well, we have to find the rockets, and so I will take one squad at a time and go off in the three different directions. And I looked at my map, and the map showed basically the, the slope of the hill. And you couldn't see very far because the jungle so thick. But So I took the first squad, and we weren't full strength. There were only about eight of them. And we headed down the hill. And as things turned out, the hill was much steeper than the map showed, and it was all wet and muddy from the recent rain and we were losing our footing and we were starting to slide down the hill and we were not in a column we were abreast so we were all sliding side by side uh, and as we went down this hill and we got about maybe halfway down and we started taking automatic weapons fire and immediately some of the guys started going down um and i could tell they'd been they'd been hit badly and maybe killed uh, but we could not move backwards we just couldn't go up the hill. It was much too wet, much too slippery. So we took up as best positions we could um, to to fight whatever we were up against, and we didn't even know what we were up against. In the meantime, my platoon sergeant's calling me and saying, do you need us? Do you need us to come down there? And I was telling him, no, don't follow us down here because you'll never get out either. Just try to circle around is what I was trying to tell him. But I was calling in artillery strikes and everything, but we were we just could not get the advantage. And one by one, um, the men around me were being uh, – the men in the first squad were being hit and uh, falling and looking to me like they were dead. Uh, I couldn't check them, but they looked like they were dead. And at one point, um, I realized I was going to need to do something more than, than artillery. I was going to need an airstrike. So I had never called in an airstrike. We've been trained to do it in OCF. I knew the protocol, but I'd never done one. I did know you have to be very accurate because it's not it's it's a big bomb and so you don't want it to miss and um potentially hit your own people. So I was I was really trying to get the exact coordinates of where I was. And so I knelt down on one knee uh to read my map and get my compass out and as I knelt down automatic a weapons fire went right where I had been standing and hit my radio operator who went down. And about that time the pilot called me and said, where do you want the bomb dropped? And I gave him the coordinates and I reached back and I was trying to stop the blood on my radio operator. And he, fortunately I had the right coordinates uh, that I had given him and he hit it exactly um, where I wanted it. Uh, It was, it was, pretty close, but not close enough to kill us, but uh, close enough to, to basically knock the wind out of you. Um, and then at that point, I turned to try to save my radio operator's life. Uh, I was giving him mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. I was trying to stop the blood coming out of his shoulder. Um, none of this being successful. He bled all over me. He threw up all over me. And um, just as the bomb dropped, I was doing that. And when, as soon as the the bomb explosion was over there was no more fighting the the enemy had either been killed or or uh, encouraged to leave the area uh, and within a few minutes then uh, other american units were arriving my platoon uh, another platoon from my company had flown out and they were they were arriving and i remember the 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 uh team leader who first got to me and i was just leaning against a tree covered with blood he first thing he yelled for was a medic and i I thought to myself, why is he calling for a medic? Everybody's dead. Nobody's wounded. But then I realized he was calling for a medic for me. And I said, well, I am not. I don't think I'm hit. <clears throat> um, but then he said, what happened? And we knew each other. And he said, what happened, Tim? And I said, everybody's dead. That was, that was the only answer I had. Everybody's dead. So things went on. Um, apparently they went out and they scoured the area and they found, um, I think, 22 or 24 enemy soldiers killed, but all eight of my all, all eight of the men with me had been killed. And so the rest of the day was just spent getting everybody out um by helicopter and getting me out and back to the area. So that was that day. That was uh June sixteenth. I did get back to the what we call a base camp and I cleaned up and took a shower and people kept asking me, Are you okay? Are you okay? The my company commander asked me, Are you okay? My other platoon leaders asked me, Are you okay? The battalion commander asked me, are you okay? And I kept saying, yeah, I'm okay, because I wasn't wounded. But I wasn't okay, John. That was the thing. I didn't realize it, but um, that had just taken everything out of me. That night in my bunker, um, I kept thinking, first of all, I had failed as a platoon leader. I had led these people into, these good men, into... Uh, situation that we couldn't get out of. I was the only one that lived. Um, I felt I felt uh, that I'd failed as a uh, officer, as a leader, and then I realized I was afraid. Now, I hadn't been afraid during the day. During the day, there was just too much going on. There was just, we were just too busy to be afraid. But that night, I got afraid, and I got so afraid I shook. And mm. I kept thinking to myself... How can it be that I am so afraid that I'm going to die when I'm a Christian? And then I realized I was questioning my own faith. And so that night I hit about as bottom as I could hit because I felt like I was a failure as a soldier. I felt a failure as a leader. I felt a failure as a Christian because I was afraid I was going to die. So that's kind of that day and that night. That's that's what happened.
2: Did you do any more fighting after that? Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. Absolutely. I yeah. I went I went right back to my unit. Wow. And um and I was but I was never the same. I didn't I I mean, I was I was afraid all the time. I couldn't sleep um at night. I I didn't feel effective. But by then, um just the way things were going in the war, um the Americans had basically chased the North Vietnamese out of South Vietnam. I mean, we had basically done what we'd set out to do earlier that spring, which was to take the offensive, and we had. And so by, oh, late August and September, there was very little fighting going on. We, we had to actually go out and look for fights because there just wasn't any to be had. And so there wasn't a lot going on, uh, which is, I'm sure, good for everybody, but – uh for me it's particularly good because i was probably not very effective at that point uh, but then at the end of september i got accidentally wounded um just by somebody accidentally dropping a grenade and that my wound got infected and then 7 weeks 7 days later my infection was so bad that that they uh, flew me to japan to treat the infections and that took so long uh to treat it took 3 months that by then my tour was up, and so I never went back to Vietnam. So that's how mm. things ended. But I spent that three months in the hospital, basically reliving uh, that day over and over and over mm. again. Mm. How did you ever get resolved? Yeah, there's, there's a, you know, maybe to some extent I haven't. I don't know yet. It's it's hard to say. But um, you know, I, I came back to the states. I actually did three more months in the army. Um, Station uh, here in California. Um, I, I went. I had nightmares about this event for for about seven years, and I had a hard time sleeping. I I, I did go to college. Um, I, and I and then I went to law school, but all that entire all time, I was struggling with what we now know as PTSD, but we didn't know it then, and there wasn't any really formal um protocols for taking care of us and so i was just dealing with stuff as best i could and unfortunately i i discovered just by accident one day that i could get some sleep by drinking wine and um so i started drinking wine but to go to bed and I, it was it was really comforting because i was actually getting some sleep the problem was it, eventually it took more than a glass of wine it took two and then eventually a half a bottle and eventually a whole bottle and then it got to the point where um, I couldn't really drink enough liquid. I mean, it, 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 I was just getting too much liquid to, to go to to go to sleep because I was just too full of liquid. That's when I discovered you could get stuff that was higher proof. I didn't know what that meant, uh, but if you could get you could drink less liquid and get the same amount of alcohol. So I switched over to a different kind, whatever I could find, and I did that for a couple of years until um, I, I had gotten married. In the meantime, my wife said, "You're." I'm not going to watch you die. We got to do something. And um, then I did. I, I I realized I was killing myself. But by then I was a lawyer and I was actually practicing law. Um, but drinking at night, oh, not only at night, no, not during the day. Um, and so I, you know, I I signed up for classes and I I was going to do all the stuff that people do. But then I realized for me that wasn't going to work. I went to those classes, and I, and I thought, "This is not. This is not me. This is not going to work. This is whatever's going on here doesn't work for me." And I started reading, and I, then I started reading my Bible again. And it was getting into the Bible, and then stumbling across John 14:12 through 14, and what Jesus said in John 14:12 was. When he was just getting ready to go back to heaven after his resurrection, I'm leaving you behind to do my work. And was reading those words, and I put it those way, I I, I kind of paraphrase it into my own words I'm leaving you, Tim, behind to do my work, to continue to do my work. I realized, well, that's why I'm here. That's what I'm supposed to be doing. And I understood his work to mean spreading the good news, I didn't understand it to mean healing people or. Or walking on water or anything like that. I understood it to be spreading the good news, the salvation story. So that's why I'm here. That's what I'm supposed to be doing. And, and that weekend, I realized that I needed to get busy in doing God's work. So um, that's what happened. That was sort of the, that was a transforming day when I read those words: "You're to do my work." Wow. And up wow. to then, I wasn't. I couldn't. I wasn't. I wasn't. Yeah. In any position to do it, but after that, then I said I've got I've got to start doing this work. So that's what I've been doing ever since. And you're doing it.
2: Tell us what that work is. Tell, tell us a little bit what that
1: looks like. Well, one, one, probably the main thing. And and John, you don't even know this part of the story. Back in uh, 2005, my nephew, uh, my sister's uh, son, and you, you. I'm sure you didn't know my sister. She was four years younger than I am. Uh, but my my. Nephew had joined the Marines and wanted to go to Iraq, and he did, and he went three times, and on his third tour, he was killed, and that was a big blow to the whole family uh, that we'd lost Jeff, and that was 2005, Um, and a friend of mine um, who knew my military background and knew about Jeff said, Tim, I got something I want you to do. I'd like you to come with me down to the Marine Corps Recruiting Station in San Diego because I think you could be of a lot of help to these young guys from your experience, and I think they'd be a lot of help to you. So I started going down there just to hang out, um, and just to be with the guys. And it turned out that I realized this was my calling. I was to be with these young Marines, and I asked the—I got involved with the Navigators Military Ministry, which was conducting these uh classes with these mer- these young uh marines and I said I'd like to get involved I'd like to become one of the instructors and they took a chance on me and so I started instructing classes down at Marine Corps Recruiting Depot in San Diego um and we'd have classes um of 3 to 400 young marines um actually recruits they don't they don't call themselves marines although they're in the marines but they call themselves recruit. we had these big classes um and w- the the Spirit was just moving. We were were having 40, 50, 60 young men a week raise their hand and accept Christ. And that went on for several years until a couple years ago when um, we ran into some difficulties with one of the chaplains and we had to move our ministry up to Camp Pendleton. And now I do the same thing up at Camp Pendleton uh, with smaller groups. There's usually around 100 to 200 uh, up at Camp Pendleton. But I teach what we would call Sunday school um, for them, it's just Bible class or uh, we call it the warrior's class after their chapel. After they go to chapel with the chaplain, they come over to our class. So that's what I'm doing now, and I've been doing it uh, ever since um, 2006. Um, and it's to me, it's, it's, it's why I was made the way I was made. Because I have a way of talking to these guys that uh, most people couldn't, and mm-hmm. I can't I I tried that tried you know homeless ministry I've tried other ministries I, I'm not very effective at it this one I'm effective at because I think God made me to be in this ministry. Oh
2: that's great that's great
1: do you end up telling you know some of your stories? Uh, I some do of your combat
2: stories and that kind of thing. Do I, I do and it's
1: not and I tell them I don't want to talk about me you know we're we're not yeah. here about me but in order for them to connect with me I do tell them. The stories, and it depends on which class i'm I'm teaching what the, what the subject is, how I tie it in, but I also talk about my nephew Jeff, who was also a christian and and he was a marine, so they didn't even connect with him, but I said, you know we were Christian warriors, we were Christians in the military, and it, it's not inconsistent to be in the military and to be a christian um, so i I used the fact that I was in combat to, just to connect with them, but not so much. I don't really want to yeah. tell them about me. I just want them to connect with the fact that I understand what they're facing,
2: yeah, yeah, well, that must be exciting though to find that your these experiences um have 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 borne fruit in some way for you to be able to to relate to these guys
1: it It really is it's it it I look forward to it um i you know i'm scheduled once a month but i can go more often and i often do and they often ask me to fill in for someone who can't make it and i always fill in for whoever can't make it because i just i love going over there and meeting with these guys i did even have the opportunity one time to have my sister and her husband come to one of my classes where i talked about their son and oh. how he was a Christian marine and how and and how you know he lived his life and I was able to tell them afterwards, you see, Jeff is still affecting people today. And, you know, that was a great source of um, um, comfort to them to know that Jeff didn't die in vain, that his life meant something, and it's still meaning something to young men today.
2: Wow, that's great. That's great. You know, um, I'm I'm thinking that uh, I want to turn you on to, uh, in fact, i maybe maybe Gunner, you can if you're still here with us you might be able to remember our guest i'm trying to find his name that we had on um who uh, he's a he's a wonderful christian brother and he has a, a a ministry that's actually he's so successful that he um is the the military um funds funds him and sends him uh people for these are people who are coming out of the war uh situations with the with with the problems that you with, that you mentioned. today uh the stress syndrome. I I forget exactly what you call it. Post-traumatic,
1: post-traumatic post traumatic post traumatic stress disorder. That's
2: right. That's right. They have they have a one like a, a like about a six day uh retreat in central California. And they treat these guys. And, and it's all just a camp, but it's all based on the Lord. And there they having a it. special. Chad, Chad, Chad Robichow. Chad Robichow. Yeah, Mighty Oak. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'd love
1: that. I'd love to get connected with him.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That would be great. Um, and we could even find his. Uh, Gunnar, can we. We, you can you can uh, get me his
0: information, can't you? Absolutely, we'll get you uh, off the air. Yeah. We'll get you all set up. Absolutely.
2: That that would be great because they they really need to connect up. Would be
1: super. Maybe maybe Tim could even go to one of those one of those events. I think that would be. I, I, I you know you know John, I have this. That my that my sense is that the the military does a great job of dealing with this these problems. So, now, especially compared to years ago, that they're really they've really made great strides. But the piece that's missing is the, is the spiritual piece. And so it yeah. sounds to me like Chad has figured out a way of of tying all this together to get the best care they can get from the military and the VA, yeah. but then to tie it in with the spiritual healing, which is I think um, really critical for yeah. for a to, be a to be holistic.
2: Yeah. That's exactly what he's doing. And he has a better success rate in six days than these other programs have in six months.
1: I'm I'm not surprised. Yeah,
2: it's it's amazing. And and these people graduate and then they come back they come back and help with the program and then they're starting other programs in other places. It's it's really mushrooming. It's fantastic and they're all meeting the Lord of course and uh it's just it's so cool to, to see the way God works through you know our lives and uh, even the most difficult things like your your worst day. Um, my gosh, I I can't imagine. Um, so nightmares are over. Or
1: you, yeah, I, not nightmares are over. Yeah, I haven't had nightmares for years. Um, and 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 that's and, not, and that's no, the Lord. You give the credit for that, probably. Huh? Yes, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> you know, and and in second place was my wife, uh, who, who said, this "Can't go on this way." I know you. Yeah. She goes, "I know you think you're being secretive, but you're not." Mm. Wow. She, she called never... me out. Go ahead. She she called me out. She says, "You, you we got to get you fixed." So we did. <laughs> oh,
2: that's great. That's great. Yeah, I remember Chad. Chad's actually working, his wife is a big part of the program, too. And then she also is is leading part of it with with women. So, uh, right. yeah, it's, it's a cool thing. Um, have you, I, I'm just, this is just me, my, my own curiosity. Um, do you, have you seen any of the Vietnam movies? Is that the last
1: thing you would want to see to bring any of that back? Uh, Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I've seen a few of them. Um, I walked out on Apocalypse Now because I didn't think it was realistic. So most of them I didn't think were realistic. Um, There was a couple. uh, This is an odd one. Did you ever see American Graffiti? Yeah. Did you ever see American Graffiti 2, the follow-up? No,
2: I don't think
1: so. Well, American Graffiti 2 is is what happens to these all these kids after they get out of high school. And and remember oh the kind of the, the goofy guy, the geeky guy? I can't yeah. remember his name. But but he ended up going to Vietnam. And um there's actually some scenes in American Graffiti 2 that I thought were accurate. <laughs> so, wow. um so but the, the the movie that I thought that was most accurate was We Were Soldiers Once and Young. Um, okay. That one, that one really hit me as as real. That's what, a, especially a night firefight. If you, it, it, mm. it, it's hard to describe some of these things, but to be in a night firefight where you actually lose your bearings, you lose the direction. So uh, there'll be an explosion or something, and you go down. When you come up, you're not sure which way you're facing anymore. So it, it's real confusing, and and it's even worse when you're in charge. You got to figure out what's mm. going on. And direct people, and you and you can't see people, and you and then your ears start ringing, and you can't hear people. It's like, how in the world oh. do you do this? So a night firefight, um, you know, is is quite the experience. Another one that's is, it, you know, we used to tell us in training, you'll love helicopters. Helicopters are wonderful because they they when you get they, they transport you, and you're not tired when you get there, which is true. But they didn't tell you you get there more often. <laughs> <laughs> because you're not walking a long time, you're, you're just going from one fight to another. Because these helicopters just pick you up and take you someplace else. But uh, so helicopters are wonderful in one sense, uh, but they they do get you where you want to go. But if you if you and most people haven't, but going into a hot landing zone, in other words, a landing zone where the enemy knows you're coming in and there's and there's machine gun fire coming in on, on you, that's an experience. Um, and and you really all your training everything. Has to has to click in at the same time, because right. it is unbelievable to come into a uh, with, with, and with helicopters going down. Some of them will actually get hit and go down around you. So you're coming in, landing, and explosions everywhere, and uh, it just it's mind boggling. I I I think back on it now, I can't believe that twenty one year olds did that. <laughs> yeah. How did we how did we even think yeah. about doing stuff like that? But um, you know, some of those experiences are. are to me, it's this har It's almost it's almost third party. Like, how I can't believe I did that. Well, uh,
2: that's it's good to hear you say that because I, I I can't believe that people like you did that. So I mean, I had the same feeling. So,
1: <laughs> well, that's amazing.
2: Well, gosh, hey, I, hey, I, can I, I share?
1: Can I just share something with you? Because um, you mentioned Lake Avenue. Yeah. One of the things I took out of out of coming out going in the military I said to myself, now I didn't say it as a promise to God, I'm not that stupid, or even a promise to myself, but I, I said it I said, I'm gonna try to go to church in the army. I don't know if you can. I didn't know. I was never I'd never been in the army. Yeah. I'm gonna try to go to church or what turns out to be they call chapel while I'm in the service. And I did right off the bat, even while I was in basic training. And um I I discovered something just in that process and that was I got I got a reputation of being known as a church guy, just because I went to church. And what I discovered in that process was having my faith outward, in other words, people knowing that I had some sort of faith, actually provided me some protection, because when we eventually got to the point where people, uh, the guys were going in, into town on on leaves and liberty, they didn't even invite me, because they, they go, well, we're not going to take Tim, he's a church guy. He's going to go to church on Sunday, so we won't we won't even invite him. So you discover that wearing your faith outwardly actually provides you some protection because it, it just it's just there. And then I realize later on that when people knew I was actually a Christian, that mm-hmm. I would get invited to go to, into town to places that I, that we should go to. And I and I think to myself, well, no, I'm not going to go there. Not only because I I don't go there, but because I'm not going to take my Savior there because he's with me. Mm-hmm. Right, I have the Holy Spirit in me. I I can't take the Holy Spirit into that place. So it provides you that double layer of protection. Not only people don't come to you, but then you realize you're an ambassador. You're a you're a representative of Jesus. So I've I've always told young guys going into service, young women, and even going into business now, wear your faith outwardly because it offers you protection. Hmm, that's fantastic. Well,
2: I hate to say it but I, I, I'm so enthralled by this whole thing that time went by much faster than I've ever noticed it go before. So uh we're we're pretty much up for time here. But um I can't thank you enough for for being on the show and just just telling your story. And uh I I feel I feel like I've connected so much better with you and um uh, I, I, it's a, there's a redemptive. I love the fact that there's a redemptive level in all this, and that that God has you doing something even in, in the midst of all that death. And I guess you know that's got to be the hardest thing: being around so much death on every side, including the enemy. Um, maybe that's our last question. How did, how did you handle that, and 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 what do you what do you do about that now?
1: Well, um, that's 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 a great question. I um, handle it the time in in a way it was just it was just factual. It was us or them. I mean, you just you had to do what you had to do. Uh, I had some, you know, some personal experience, up close experience with uh, going through one enemy soldier's pocket and finding his wallet, and in his wallet was a picture of his girlfriend or his wife, and that wow. really moved me. Um, and so that was that was a very difficult time because I I really kind of connected with that young guy. Um, and now, you know, I, I deal with it mostly like in a way that I'm not sure this was God's plan that all along, but God had a purpose. It, it was going to use me afterwards, if, if nothing else. So, you know, I don't know that God wanted me there or this was, you know, I didn't ask him, you know, give me your guidance on this. I just did it. Um, so I, I, I've never really figured that part out. What, but I do know this: that God using me now, and I'm alive now for some reason, and that reason is to spread the good news. Well, Tim, I, I
2: want to say, I want to say, I think God wanted you there. I think absolutely. I, I don't think God makes any mistakes, and I think He had you there, or otherwise you wouldn't be doing what you're doing now you wouldn't you wouldn't have gone through you wouldn't have the faith you have now and you wouldn't you you wouldn't have the reality of of what you have to say. And somehow God that's just the amazing part that, that I think God wraps up everything in our lives. The yeah. the death and the life and, and uh he makes use of it and, and somehow each each one of those people who who died I mean they've had Some encounter with God they've, they've had to Face into Their creator One way or another And yep. uh, You know
1: We just hope that uh, We hope that we see each other You know uh, Someday uh, I'm sure we will And John it's It's been great yeah. talking to you And connecting with you again too
2: Tim Thank you God bless And uh, maybe we'll see you in April <laughs> I hope so If, if not before Okay Alright Okay Thanks, Thanks so John Okay, bye 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 bye. are you
0: still around? I absolutely am, and
1: uh, <laughs> I'm,
0: I'm, yeah, I got I'm lost in that one. <laughs> they went by quick, and I'll tell you, much like the you know the interview uh, conversation with Chad, uh, mm-hmm. just I mean, it's just you just we just have no idea, you know. Um, I, yeah. I just can't even I can't even fathom, you know, and um, just uh, the insight and. Um, how do you resolve, you know, and uh, incredible, incredible. Yeah, and isn't
2: it, isn't it great, though, the way that, um, that God is using him now? And, yeah. and he's got this yeah. confidence, and he's not, mm-hmm. you know, he's not in the hospital somewhere mentally completely blown out, yeah. you know? Yeah. I mean, he's, and that's just, to me, that is nothing short of uh a miracle. I mean that that's just a to the power of God.
0: No, absolutely. And
2: question. and he's not he's also not, you know, he hasn't buried it. He's able to talk to it, talk about it. He's able I was surprised he's able to even go to these movies,
0: you know? Oh and uh Yeah. Yeah. Especially with it you know, like you talked about and what Chad talked about with the um um you know, the the, the PTS, you know, and Mm -hmm. And, uh, and just, you know, the trick, you know, things are just kind of just put that switch, you know, just that to be able to go to films like that. But, you know, amazing. What an opportunity too you know, I mean, obviously, you know, sharing about it and writing about it, you know, and and, and writing in the catch, um, you know, and then to be able to just have a conversation that it did it literally, it went by in the blink of an eye (laughs) tonight. It It did. And, uh, there's a lot of, a lot of nuggets, Um, In this conversation, I think that uh, are awaiting people to go back and listen again, share with others uh, to be found.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think I, you know, I I really, Gunnar, I don't think there are many people who
0: who have heard
2: firsthand stories like this.
0: No, I, I, you know, it's, it's captivating.
2: And, and this isn't a movie. This is a guy's real life. You know, I mean, he he was there. He went through that experience. I mean, it's just it's mind-boggling. But what a what what a wonderful opportunity that that we actually got to be a part of that.
0: And we we well, we, it you is. You know, we get to be invited into his life. Well, and so much. You know, <sighs> you have so many people that. I mean, I mean, war is. You know, I mean, it, it is. It's. It's it's an ugly. Uh, it's just without words, and and it's so obviously in the controversy and this side and that side and all that. But sure. To be able to put all that aside and to be able to sit down and just listen and and yeah. walk through that and how you resolve it and how you you know all of that, especially then you know you know um, with Vietnam and such, it's it really is something uh, to to be able to sit and, and just listen. My my next door neighbor who we since um had he passed uh with um a liver transplant with hep C, you know from his experience in vietnam i remember going next door uh one time with him and he didn't do this often with 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 guys that were civilians like me and such but i remember sitting there for man maybe three or four hours on a, on a saturday afternoon and just he just opened up and just shared with me mm-hmm. stories and i was i was it was an honor because i know it's mm-hmm. not easy to go there and Amazing work that Tim's doing, though. It's, it's just incredible. And then the follow Chad's interview, you know, in the conversation he had yeah. with Chad. Uh, what amazing, uh, just amazing insight that we've been given. So, well, wow.
2: Well, back into it. It's Tuesday night, and we had a good one. And, and uh, so I think we need to sign off here. I'm going to let you go. i will let you land the plane.
0: All right, <laughs> we'll land the plane, and we'll land the plane the way we started, you know. And and just the insight that you have, a little uh, Matthew's blues, and uh, be sure be sure to share this. If you're listening now, be sure to share this uh, this uh, episode with uh, your your friends and family and network. Uh, tune in tomorrow morning. Uh, catch com. Sign up to get to catch John. It's been an amazing evening. Until the next okay. time, we'll see you then.
2: Okay. Thank you, Gunner. God bless. Thank
0: you, Tim. You're listening to The Catch with John Fisher on Blog Talk Radio, connecting life to faith.
2: We're just trying to get it together, trying to help the fellow. Man.